Well, good morning, everyone. Wonderful to see you all out here uh, today on this fine, fine Sunday morning. We get to be in the house of the Lord to worship again, and it's a beautiful thing. So uh, today we're going to be continuing in our study in Acts, Acts chapter 9, as uh, Steve read for us uh, in a message that I'm calling, uh, I Saw the Light. This was inspired uh, by our trip to Harvest America a couple of weeks ago, where uh, the band Crowder did this awesome rendition of the 1948 Hank Williams song, uh, I Saw the Light. Uh, and Paul saw the light in this chapter. So the first verse in the chorus go like this. Uh, I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Well, I don't know if Hank was a Christian or not, but uh, he wrote a song that uh, Paul would have wrote if he had grown up in the Deep South uh, and was, uh, was, was able to write a song like Hank could write because he, uh, he saw the light. He had a, an encounter with the living God and he, uh, he had a confrontation with Jesus and then he had a commission uh, from Jesus and then he had conflict with the Jews. So uh, we'll talk about all that, but let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do thank you uh, that Paul saw the light. Uh, because through his witness, uh, countless millions over 2,000 years have been saved, Lord. Uh, taking the gospel uh, from where it was in Jerusalem and uh, it has spread around the world due to people who witness like Paul, Lord. And, and though we are not uh, in our witness going to be as significant as Paul, uh, more than likely, Lord, yet we can still affect the people that we come in contact with on a daily basis. And who knows what you will do with our witness, Lord. And so we pray uh, that your word would uh, be spoken clearly today, that it would be received, and that, Lord, we would take it uh, and use it for what you intend, to spread it out into the world, to make disciples who make other disciples, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing we see is this confrontation uh, that Paul has with Jesus. Now, uh, the last we heard of uh, Saul was chapter 8, verse 3. Remember, he was out ravaging the church, and he was arresting men and women and going about dragging them off to prison uh, in chains. And then uh, Luke takes a little break, and then he tells us about uh, the ministry of Philip, how, how Philip ministered in Samaria, and then he came uh, to minister one-on-one -on -one to this Ethiopian eunuch. And now here's Luke returning to the story uh, of Paul, of, uh, yeah, of Paul, and what we find is that nothing has changed in his life. He's still going out, ravaging the church and uh, trying to uh, arrest, persecute, maybe even kill Christians as he tries to, to destroy this church. And the only thing that has changed is that now he's actually got more power than he used to have because he's been given these letters of extradition from the high priest who was still probably uh, Caiaphas at the time. And so he's got these letters of extradition that he can take up into Damascus. And when he finds uh, people who are of the way, as he calls them, in Damascus, he's able to take these people, arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem where they can stand trial uh, for the crime of preaching and proclaiming the name of Jesus and believing uh, in Jesus. And you can just imagine Saul, right, with his face beat red, he's steaming mad, and he's on his way to Damascus, and uh, he's ready to destroy the church uh, in any way he can. Uh, you could say that he was a bit obsessed with his task, perhaps even fanatical about his task. Uh, so rabid was Paul to destroy 
of this early church. You all know this guy? This is Dennis Rodman. He was known as one of the dirtiest basketball players who, who ever played, and uh, teammates hated playing against him because he was so cheap and so, so dirty. He would do anything that he had to do uh, to win. So he didn't want to play against Dennis Rodman, but his teammates loved him because he was such a team player and supportive of his own team. Well, Saul was the same kind of guy. He was not the kind of guy that you did not want to have on your team, right? If he was on the opposing team, that's a dangerous thing for you. Uh, you wanted him on your team uh, because you knew he would do anything that he had to do to win. And so that's, that's what he was doing. And uh, so he was passionate. He was driven. He was convinced of the rightness of everything that he believed. And he was absolutely uh, assured of the rightness that he was engaged in going to Damascus and persecuting this church and trying to, to tear it down. And he was about to find out in very dramatic fashion how wrong he was uh, about the things that he had been doing. And so Luke uh, tells this story three times in Acts, actually. That's how important that he thinks uh, Paul's conversion story is. Uh, he tells it here uh, in the third person, but in Acts 22 and in Acts chapter 26, he lets Paul tell his own story uh, in the first person. We'll get, uh, we'll get to there. So what we see is that while on his way to Damascus, uh, Saul saw this bright shining light, uh, brighter than the sun. Uh, Acts 22 and Acts 26 tell us that it was at noon and that it was midday, which is the brightest time of the day for the sun in Israel. So this sun had to be uh, the brightest light, brighter than the brightest light. So bright was it that uh, he saw it, his companions saw it, and he was knocked to the ground uh, by the brightness of this light and the sound of the voice that came. And the voice said in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in response, Saul asks a question that anyone who wants to know the risen Lord has to ask. Who are you, Lord? Right? We all need to ask that question. If we're going to know who Jesus is, if we're going to grow in our walk with him, we have to ask that question. And he uses this term, Lord. The Greek word is kyrios, and it has a wide range of meaning. It can mean something polite like sir, uh, all the way up to uh, speaking to divinity. Now, I'm sure Saul was using it uh, more than just a polite sir, uh, but he had no idea that he was talking to the risen Jesus Christ. And boy, was he about to have uh, a rude awakening, right? And so the voice from heaven responded, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And I just like to think of the gulp in Saul's throat, right? As he's going about doing this task of persecuting Christians and then hears from heaven, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And uh, I can imagine his blood ran, ran cold and the chills that went down his spine uh, thinking about how much trouble uh, he was in as a result of uh, being told by Jesus that you're persecuting me when you persecute uh, my people. Well, how do you respond when you're, uh, everything you believe, everything you know, everything you stand for, everything in the core of your being, you've just found in an instant that it's not true, that you were wrong, and your whole world is turned upside down. You know, some of you probably can't remember a time when you weren't Christians. You've been Christians your whole lives. Uh, others of you have spent at least part of your lives uh, living in open rebellion uh, to God. Uh, I was one of those people. I felt like I had no need for God whatsoever. I thought I was completely self-sufficient. I thought God was for weak people uh, who needed a crutch to get through life. 
Uh, and God broke me through a series of circumstances where he prepared me uh, to hear his word and finally to respond to it. I began to read the Bible. I'm not sure if I was trying to prove its claims or disprove its claims. I just wanted to know. Uh, well, I, I, uh, I became a believer. Uh, but that's the story of God's grace, uh, his grace in my life. And uh, I came into the kingdom uh, kicking and screaming and being dragged into the kingdom, which is why I believe in election, because I would never have chosen myself. Uh, I chose not to be elected, and yet God chose me to be elected anyway, and, and Saul uh, had the same experience. Uh, when I believed, I had to confess my sin, which was great. Uh, and it's a scary moment when you realize, uh, thinking back over your life, how the things that you've said and done and believed uh, have been so offensive to God, and you just flippantly went on about your life offending God like it didn't mean a thing. Uh, when you realize that, that's a very scary moment. And I'm sure that many of you uh, latecomers to Christ can relate to that. What is so incomprehensible sometimes, even to Christians, uh, is the concept of grace. Uh, in, the 1980, in the book 1984 by George Orwell, uh, the book's premise is that there's a, the government is big brother uh, and they look out over you and they have this agency that works for them called the Thought Police and they go around uh, looking for subversives against the government who uh, are people who are, are thinking thoughts bad against the government. And, and if a subversive is caught, uh, he's arrested and he's thrown into prison where he is physically and he's psychologically tortured uh, until he comes to the realization, at least imposed upon him, that indeed the government is great and indeed the government is right. And as soon as his mind has been purified to that extent that he can confess that the government is great and the government is right, uh, they shoot him in the back of the head while his mind is still pure. Uh, and I think, thinking about this in terms of, of our conversion, you know, Jesus could have done the same thing with us, right? He could reveal himself to us and then have us say, oh, yes, Jesus, now I understand you are Lord. And then he could kill us uh, while our minds are still purified. But there's no grace in that, right? Grace is that he shows us who he is, and then he lets us live, he, he gives us his revelation, and then we receive him, and then we get to go on and share that good news uh, with other people. I've experienced that grace. You've experienced that grace, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Saul also experienced that grace. Uh, he probably had his heart in his throat when he realized uh, who he was speaking to and who he offended, and he was probably just waiting to be killed like a firing squad victim is waiting to hear the sound of the gunshot. But instead, there is grace. Uh, Jesus, by his grace, says, Get up and go into the city, verse 6, and you will be told what it is that you must do. Our God is a God of second chances. He never turns his back on us. He always is wanting us to come home to him. Whether you're a believer who's uh, drifted from him or you're an unbeliever who's lived in rebellion to him, he wants you, he wants you back. Have you been drifting from God a little bit? Uh, have you been neglecting him? Have you been neglecting prayer and Bible study? Have you been engaged maybe in things that uh, may not be pleasing to God? Uh, turn today. Repent today. He will always accept you back. Uh, he, he is a God of second chances. Uh, so repent. Be reconciled. Uh, Saul was first blinded by this flash of light, and he's knocked to the ground uh, so that he can't even see. And so he has to be uh, picked up by the people he was traveling with and led by the hand uh, into the city. 
Uh, he came as this terrifying destroyer and avenger uh, uh, trying to kill Christians, and yet he's led into the city by the hand like a helpless child, broken and helpless. He was so devastated by this confrontation with Jesus that he, uh, he couldn't even eat or drink for a period of three days. And, and I imagine him blind, hungry, thirsty, and in his mind, twisting through the scriptures that he knew like the back of his hand, right? Thinking, how could I have missed it? How could I have missed Jesus in all of this? And coming to grips with how wrong he had been for all these years and the grace of Jesus to not take him out right there, but to say, go into the city and you'll be told what it is that you must do. And so he's there in the city waiting for these instructions and he's about to receive a commission from Jesus and compassion from Ananias. And so there's this disciple in Damascus, his name is Ananias. And, and what we learn from him in these few verses is all we know about him. He's just a humble servant of the Lord, uh, waiting for the Lord's instruction uh, and, and listening uh, to be told what he must do. Damascus is about a one week's walk from uh, Jerusalem. So I'll show it to you on a map. Uh, here is Jerusalem down here, and there is Damascus right up there, about 175 miles uh, to the north. And so it says something about Saul's uh, zeal to persecute Christians, that he would be willing to walk this 175 miles uh, to arrest Christians, bring them back, and have them stand trial. Uh, but it also says something about how far and how fast the gospel was traveling, right? This is uh, not so far distant in the future, right? In Acts chapter 8, the gospel had moved from Jerusalem out into Samaria, and now it's spread all the way up to Damascus in just a couple years period of time. Uh, the people who were scattered from uh, Jerusalem were taking the gospel wherever they went. And, and we don't know if Ananias was one of those who was scattered from Jerusalem or if he heard the gospel from people who were. But either way, he's a believer in a faraway land, and he's ready to be used for God's purposes. So God calls Ananias. When Jesus spoke to Saul, Saul had no idea who was talking to him, right? But Ananias seems completely different. He's ready for God's call. It's almost like he has this kind of conversation with God every day. It's like he's just answering the telephone. Hello, God, here I am. What do you need from me today? Uh, and, and he set, just says, here I am, Lord. And that's the perfect answer, right? It shows his readiness, his willingness, and his desire to obey. And it's, it's a model for us and for how we ought to be listening for the voice of God too. And, and when we hear it, uh, we simply say, uh, yes, Lord, and be willing to do whatever it is that he has for us. Well, Ananias is told that there's a certain man and he's at, staying at the house of this man, Judas, who lives on Straight Street in Damascus, which, by the way, is still there. Uh, if you go to Straight Street in Damascus, uh, it's still there. It's one of the oldest streets in the whole world. And, and so uh, Judas, or, he's, or Saul is staying in the house of Judas, and he's, he's praying. Uh, and so you have this idea of, of, uh, of Ananias getting this vision, and then you have a vision within a vision, right? Ananias is seeing a vision, and in that vision, he's seeing Paul having a vision. Uh, so what we see is, is that... God tells Ananias, I want you to go lay hands on this man. Uh, and and uh, Ananias 
uh, is afraid naturally. But what's happening is, is that we see behind the scenes here that God is in complete control of everything that's going on here, right? He's in control of Saul's conversion. He's in, in, in charge of the co commission that he's about to get. He's in charge of Ananias showing compassion. And he's in charge of the way this whole thing is orchestrated about how Saul is going to be saved. There's, there's lots of ways to be saved, right? And, and God has chosen this way uh, for Saul. And so it shows us that he can break into our thoughts at any time. He can, uh, he, he's sovereign over our lives. He can interrupt us wherever we are. In a, in a nanosecond, he can change the trajectory of our lives if he wants to. Uh, this is a, a passage about Saul's conversion, uh, but it's also a passage about the sovereignty of God and the grace of God and how God can use a humble servant like Ananias. And can you imagine what a witness Ananias must have made for the rest of his life as he went about telling this story uh, to anybody he would have come in contact with. But before he became a witness, he had to be convinced, right? Ananias wasn't so sure that this was such a good idea, right? He had heard about this man, Saul. Uh, Lord, I've heard about this man, uh, how, he's, uh, how he has persecuted our people, and now he has power and authority to come to Damascus and, and arrest Christians and, and take them back to Jerusalem so that they can be persecuted uh, as well. And uh, so Ananias is just simply afraid of Paul, and you can imagine with good reason. Uh, but in response to Ananias's fear, uh, he's given basically the purpose statement for the rest of Paul's life and an outline for the rest of the book of Acts. So before Paul ever knew what he was supposed to be doing, Ananias is the one who heard it first. He is a chosen instrument of mine who will bear my name to the Gentiles, to the kings and the sons of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And beginning in this chapter, uh, and then starting again in chapter 13, when we pick up the story of Saul again, we're going to see him speaking to Gentiles and to kings and to the sons of Israel and to be persecuted for his name. But all of that is in the future. For now, Ananias has to decide, do I trust Jesus? Am I going to get up and am I going to go to the house and find this man Saul? Well, Ananias trusted Jesus completely and he went and he laid hands uh, on Saul. And it took complete trust in Ananias to do that. I'm not sure if I would have done that or if I would have turned like Jonah in the other direction and run like mad, right? But Ananias was completely faithful. He was literally risking his life, when you think about it, to do what he did. And his first words to, Anan or to Paul in verse 17 are, Brother Saul. And I just think that is so tender and so affirming that I just want to take a moment uh, to think about that. Uh, this is Saul. He had taken part in Stephen's death, right? He stood there holding and guarding the robes of the people who were stoning him to death. There's no doubt Ananias knew about that. And obviously from the text, we know that Ananias knew that Saul had power to come to Damascus to uh, persecute and arrest other Christians. Uh, and so Saul's going about killing Ananias' own people, and yet here's Ananias who's willing to go to him uh, and calls him brother. And as Christians, we have to think about that. We have to think about loving our friends, but also our enemies as well, right? People who are not our favorite people, uh, people I call EGRs, extra grace required, right? We have people like that in our lives. And so when you have people like that, we have to show the love to them like Saul, or like Ananias showed to Saul. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the power to affirm others, to forgive others, to encourage others, to include others, to love others. We can do these things because we have the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, this wasn't easy for Ananias as Saul is going about killing his people, uh, but by the obedience to the Holy Spirit, he was able to do that. And so we should be looking for other Christians who need affirmation, confirmation, encouragement, love. Uh, it's a simple thing, really. It's a, it's a text. It's a note. It's a phone call. It's a touch. Just let somebody know that you love them and you're thinking about them. Uh, that's, that's what Ananias was doing here. So Ananias lays hands on Saul to confirm the vision uh, that Saul was having. Uh, Jesus didn't have to use Ananias to do this, right? Uh, Jesus doesn't need Ananias to touch Saul to remove the blindness from his eyes or to impart the Holy Spirit uh, to Saul, right? We, we can all agree on that, but, but what did Saul need more than anything? Saul needed a friend, and God chose Ananias to be that friend. Here's Saul. He's hated by Christians. Now he's going to be hated by Jews because he's seen uh, a vision now that tells who Jesus is. And so who's he got for a friend? He's got nobody for a friend, right? The Christians are going to hate him. The Jews are going to hate him. And so Ananias is God's chosen friend for Saul. And so how comforting it must have been for, for Paul to hear these words, brother Saul, and to feel the touch of Ananias. Now Saul is not a pariah. He's not an outcast. He's a loved brother in the faith. And immediately his blindness was gone. The physical scales fall off his eyes and he can see. And more importantly, his spiritual blindness is gone as he understands uh, who Jesus is. And then he's baptized. And so Saul still has plenty to learn, but now he is saved. And he's going to take all that passion, all that zeal, all that energy, all of that conviction that he used against the kingdom and now turn it for the kingdom. And as soon as he did, he would have conflict with the Jews, right? So let's read about the conflict with the Jews as we approach uh, the end of the story. Uh, Saul was a man of action, right? Uh, we can agree on that. He took food and was strengthened, and he immediately went about uh, preaching the word and, and, and proclaiming the, to the Jews in the synagogues, this man is the son of God. Can you imagine the Jews' faces when, you, when Paul comes in and starts saying, this man is the son of God? They must have been like... Uh, what happened to you? Who are you? This is the guy who is persecuting and killing Christians, and now you're saying Jesus is the Son of God? Uh, the Jews were amazed, is the, is the word that's used there in most translations, because of the 180 that Paul had done. The Greek word is existanto, and it means to be beside yourself. It means uh, to be struck out of your senses, uh, so confused and confounded uh, were the Jews by what had happened uh, to Saul. Uh, when I told people that I was a believer, uh, people that I knew were existanto. And when I told them that we were picking up and moving from New Jersey to Texas to go to seminary, they were even more existanto. And I'm sure that you've had that experience in your lives too, some of you. When you told people that you were believers, I'm sure people were existantoed by your testimony, knowing who you may have been in your past life, and now here you are uh, proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Well, Saul used to persecute the people of the way, uh, and now he was proving that, he, that Jesus was the Son of God. And so the Jews who encountered him, they were not going to give Paul any special treatment. He would get no special dispensation because he used to be one of them, how he, how he used to be persecuting Christians. He was going to get the same treatment that the Christians got from them. But Saul used his prodigious intellect and the revelation from the Holy Spirit to continually confound these Jews who were trying to argue with him now. And it doesn't say whether he made any converts or not, but we know that he was winning lots of arguments. 
And winning arguments is a good thing in, in one sense, but uh, it's a bad thing in another sense because it can bring violence upon you because if people can't beat you with their words, uh, they're likely to beat you with their fists uh, because they would rather uh, do that than admit that you are right and that they are wrong. And so that takes us to verse 23. Uh, verse 23 begins with, when many days had elapsed. Uh, when many days had elapsed is interesting, and uh, I'll just flip there for a moment and, and read that verse. It says, when many days had elapsed, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. So I want us to think about what the many days means. Uh, I, want, I want to show you Galatians chapter 1. Uh, look at me, with me at verses 15 to 17. Here's what it says. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So, what happened here is that these events most likely happened between verses 22 and 23. Though when many days that elapsed, that was, this is an interlude between verses 22 and 23. He left Damascus for some reason, then he went to Arabia to receive a revelation from God. Uh, and then he returned to Damascus, and that's where Luke picks up the story again in verse 23. So it's a little confusing, but there's a gap here between verses 22 and 23, where Paul had spent three years in Arabia. Now, either Luke didn't know that Paul went to Arabia, which I think is highly unlikely because he was a traveling companion of Saul's, and you also have to realize that by the time Luke was written, I'm sorry, that by the time Acts was written, all of Saul's, Paul's letters had already been written except for 1st, 2nd Timothy, and uh, Titus. So, those letters are already in existence, and, and probably Luke knows about them, so probably he just didn't seem to want to include the fact that uh, Saul left, went to Arabia, and came to Damascus again uh, before this uh, story resumes. So now Paul is on his second trip to Damascus, as verse 23 picks up, and he's arguing with the Jews, uh, and the Jews decided that they were going to kill him, and they're watching the gates day and night so that they could put him to death, and Saul... He gets wind of this plot. He knows about the story. And so he slides out the window in a laundry basket, uh, which, of course, is not a very glorious escape. But, you know, you do what you have to do when uh, your life is on the line. And this wall in Damascus is still there. And many scholars think that this very window is the window that Saul was lowered out of the laundry basket from uh, to freedom and safety. So I uh, don't know if that's true or not, but the wall was there at the time. And so it may may very well uh, have been the window that Saul uh, came out of. So now that we've got that down, I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, and I want to show you verses 32 and 33. And here's what they say. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes, that's Damascus, in order to seize me. And I, let, I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. And so I show you these two passages in the Bible, Galatians and this, this passage from 2 Corinthians, to show 
uh, how the Bible uh, correlates with itself, how it corroborates itself, how the truth can be found uh, from within it. Uh, it's always helpful when we're studying an event of the Bible or a doctrine of the Bible to try and see if it is spoken about in other places so we can verify it from other places within the Bible. And so uh, we have separate accounts here of the same incident in Acts and in 2 Corinthians uh, that verify and corroborate the same event. And so I just want you to have confidence in your Bible. And one way to do that is to correlate events and doctrines so that you can know that your Bible is true. Well, after Saul escaped from Damascus, he returned or he went back to Jerusalem for his first post-conversion visit now uh, to Jerusalem. And again, he needed a friend. Apparently, the disciples were still very much afraid of him because they did not want to see him. Uh, he needed somebody to vouch for him. And who steps up but Barnabas? And his name means son of encouragement. And Barnabas vouched for Paul. He said to these Jews, uh, this man, Paul, he has seen the risen Lord and, and he has spoken to the risen Lord. And, and the apostles were probably like, uh, yeah, great. Anybody could make that up. But then the third thing that he says is this man went about proclaiming the name of Jesus to the people uh, who he used to uh, persecute Christians with. And so that must have convinced the apostles because uh, from that time forward, he was able to move about uh, freely throughout Jerusalem. And he proclaimed the name of Jesus boldly. Uh, and he was doing it to these Hellenistic Jews. Uh, and so that's going to cause more problems for Saul. Now, you remember back in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, it was Stephen who was having these arguments with these Hellenistic Jews, right? And the Hellenistic Jews are the ones who stoned Stephen to death. And so here you have uh, Saul arguing with the very people whose robes he was holding a couple years ago when Stephen was being persecuted. And so uh, you can just imagine this scene as, as he's uh, arguing with these Hellenistic Jews. Probably some of the very same people uh, were arguing with him whose robes he held. And so uh, it says in Galatians 1.18 that Saul only spent 15 days in his first visit to Jerusalem on his first post-conversion visit. So it didn't take long for Paul to get under people's skin, right? As soon as he was there, he starts arguing with people, and they're ready to kill him too. Uh, and so they decide, his disciples do, that we have to get Saul out of here. Uh, they got wind of this plot, and they moved him uh, out of Jerusalem uh, to Caesarea, which you can see on the map here, up on the coast. And then from there up to Tarsus, that's another 550 miles from Caesarea. Tarsus is his hometown. And Paul's going to spend 10 years in Tarsus, and we don't have any record of anything that he did there, which was why, uh, that's why those are called the silent years of Paul's ministry. I'm sure he was ministering Tarsus, but we just don't have any record of it. Well, Saul logged a lot of miles in Acts chapter 9. Just look at the places that he had been in chapter 9. He started in Jerusalem, then moved to Damascus in verses 3 to 22, then off to Arabia, back to Damascus, down to Jerusalem again, to Caesarea and then to Tarsus, all in Acts chapter 9. And that's a lot of miles. I mean, a thousand miles at least. And we haven't even begun to touch the kind of miles that Paul is going to log once these missionary journeys begin in uh, Acts chapter 13. Well, 
Meanwhile, the persecution of the church has now ended, right? You remove the big persecutor and the persecution ends. And when you make that person a supporter of Christianity, well, that's a lot of peace that you're going to enjoy. So uh, verse 31 says that the church walked in the fear of the Lord, enjoyed the comfort of the Holy Spirit, experienced grace, and continued to increase. And so this verse 31 is another one of Luke's summary statements in the book of Acts that we see from time to time, where he's talking about uh, how the gospel has progressed and how the, uh, and how the church is increasing. So uh, the Lord added 3,000 new believers on the first day, on the day of Pentecost, and then more were added day by day, Acts 2.47, and then Multitudes were added, uh, Acts 5.14, and then the number of disciples increased greatly, Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and now here the church is growing and continuing to increase. The gospel had reached the Jews, the Samaritans, an Ethiopian eunuch even, and soon we're going to see the first Gentile convert when we get to Acts chapter 10. Uh, but for now, I want us to think about a couple of applications. I want to, us to talk about uh, two things that we can know and one thing that we can do. So the first thing that we can know is that sin is serious. I want us to think about Deuteronomy chapter 3 for just a second. Uh, this is the story where Moses wanted to cross into the promised land, and he was asking God if he could uh, cross into the promised land. And he says, Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, the good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough, speak to me no more of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes to the west and north and south and east and see it with your own eyes, for you will not cross the Jordan. Do you all remember why uh, Saul was not allowed to cross the Jordan? It was for striking a rock, stealing God's glory by striking a rock and saying, must we make water pour forth from this rock? Moses wasn't pouring forth any water from that rock, right? Jesus, God was pouring forth water from that rock. And God had said, speak to the rock, but Moses struck the rock. The water pour forth, uh, poured forth, but that was enough of a sin that Moses was not allowed to go and see the promised land. Now, this is Moses. This is Moses, right? This is Moses, and he's not allowed to go in and see the promised land. How serious does God take sin? Uh, when I think of some of the things that I have done and some of the things that I have said and some of the things that I have believed before I became a believer, I am horrified of those things. And I'm sure when many of you think of some of the things that you've thought, said, and believed, uh, you're horrified as well. But God's grace is enough to cover it all. And that is the beauty of the gospel. So as we think about this conversion story of Saul, it's all about Saul coming into the kingdom, but I don't want us to lose the seriousness of our sin because if we lose that, we'll forget what it was that Jesus had to pay for, right? Jesus had to pay a heavy, heavy debt to cover our sin. And that brings me to the second thing that I want us to know, and that is that God's grace is greater than our sin. Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead so I could have eternal life with him. And he did the same thing for you. The work of salvation is all God's. He does the drawing. He does the saving. He does the imparting of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the power to live a sanctified and holy life. Uh, there is no one beyond his reach. Paul wasn't. I wasn't. 
you aren't, and none of your friends, neighbors, coworkers, family, none of those are beyond God's reach either. Keep praying for them. Keep believing that God can change them because he can. And now one thing I want you to do, and that is to write out your testimony this week. Your testimony is the story of who you were before Christ came into your life and what you've become and what God is doing with you after uh, God has come into your life. And give God the glory. Your testimony is not about you. Your testimony is about what God has done with you, with this broken vessel that I am. What has God done with with me? Uh, And that gives God the glory. Paul's conversion may seem like it was an overnight, instantaneous conversion, right? I don't think it was. He was Jesus' contemporary. He may have heard Jesus speak in Jerusalem from time to time. We, we don't know that, but he could have, certainly. Uh, he was being influenced by what he heard from other people. He was certainly influenced by Stephen. He watched Stephen see this vision, a vision that he could not see. And he's, Stephen is talking to God, and he's accepting this stoning with joy. That had to have an effect on Saul, right? Who knows what was going on in his own personal life? I mean, maybe he's, he's expending all this energy and all this anger and chasing Christians down and seeing, you know, this thing is spreading and I can't stop it. It's like trying to stop a tidal wave, uh, the way Christians are being converted. Uh, maybe he thought about Stephen's speech and the joy he had. And maybe he was starting to think, what am I missing here? What did Stephen see that I can't see? I don't know if those things happened or not, but they might have. What I'm trying to say is that I don't believe that anyone's conversion is truly overnight. God is working in our lives. He's doing things. He's putting circumstances and things in our lives that will have an effect on us, that will cause us to be ready to believe at that moment when we do believe. One day you didn't believe, and the next day you did. And that transformation is the, is the, is the end of a long process of what God has been doing in your life. So write it down, your life before Christ, your life after Christ. It's a useful tool for you, and it's a very useful tool tool for evangelism. Uh, After you've written it, uh, think about it. Think about what God has done in your life. That's incredible enough. Then think about how you can use your testimony uh, to help others in their walk, whether they need to be converted and become a disciple, or after they've been converted, how you can help them in their walk. Others are going to come in your path who have gone through the same things that you have gone through and you can help them. Uh, I would be very comfortable talking to somebody about infertility, uh, anxiety, depression, uh, pride. All of those things are part of my story and maybe part of yours, but there are things in your story that you can help uh, with other people because they're part of those people's stories too. So think about what's unique about your testimony and how that can help someone else. And after you've done these things and taken a look at your testimony, just praise God. Praise God that he would take somebody like you, somebody like me, uh, and and do things, use us for for somebody else uh, to have a better, closer relationship with him. He condescends to save sinners like ourselves, and he will continue to do that. And incredibly, he will use broken vessels like us to do it. So let's thank God and praise him for those things. Lord God, I do thank you for the testimony of Paul, the most incredible, the most effective uh, disciple that there ever was. Uh, And yet, Lord, the work that you've given him to do is the same work that you've given us to do. 
Lord, you said to him, go into the city and you will be told what it is that you must do. And then you gave him a commission. Go and preach the word. Go tell people who I am. And it's no different than the commission that we have, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you will give us the courage and the conviction to do what it is that you have told us to do. And Lord, that you will send us out and that we will find uh, fertile hearts. Jesus said, go. The fields are white for, white for harvest and pray that the Lord will send workers out into his field. And Lord, I pray that you will do that among us and that we will find fields that are white for harvest, Lord, and that we would reap a fine harvest because you do the work, Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.